My name is Andy. I help people live life on purpose. This podcast explores the mystery, beauty, and complexity of life through conversations with an array of incredible practitioners, all of them working at the edge of what's possible for humanity. This is a place for big dreams, bold creativity, and fierce hope. Welcome to the Wonder Dome. If you're inspired by this conversation and you'd like to see it reach more people, you can help the Wonder Dome take flight by sharing it with friends and colleagues, subscribing, giving us a high star rating, and best of all, leaving a glowing review. If you'd like to go even further, consider becoming a monthly supporter. You'll help me keep the lights on and support a wide range of charitable causes. You can learn more at mindfulcreative.coach. Thanks in advance for helping us inspire the world. My guest today is Reggie Mara. Reggie is the author of the new book, Healing America's Narratives, the feminine, the masculine, and our collective national shadow. His work is about helping people become more fully human, and he's often seen wearing a sweatshirt that says, Decent Human. And you know, a part of me goes like, man, that takes a kind of swagger to claim your place as a decent human. But another part of me goes like, gosh, if only, if only more of us anchored in that as, a, as an aspiration, to be decent to each other. And, you know, decent has, in a way, in our culture of overachieving and success and maximization, which in part Reggie actually explores in his book, Healing America's Narrative. It has a kind of like quality of just, no, oh, it's all right. But there's something deeply grounding about the recognition that Reggie embodies. And by the way, he is a fucking decent dude. He's a really decent human being. There's something that he, he embodies around this recognition that we are no more and no less than the way we treat each other. That all of us can own the journeys we've been on, what shaped us, who we've become, how we've come to believe what we've believed. And we can also interrogate that and come up with new ways of being and believing, all in service of what Reggie talks a lot about, a lot about compassionate wisdom, conscious awareness, gratitude, forgiveness, laughter, joy, love. He's a writer. Um, he, he's a fitness uh, enthusiast. He's a meditative practitioner. He does work with individuals, large groups. And he was also my, I should have said this right at the top, little bias alert. Reggie was my first coach supervisor. So five or six years ago when I was walking into this identity as a change agent, as someone who accompanies others to become their full self, Reggie was the person who was most closely paying attention to how I showed up in that role and all the ways I tried to perform that role rather than to embody it. And he is just such a, a generous and decent human being. And for him to write this book, which is not his first book, he has a, um, some, a number of collections of poetries and some books he's, he's sort of edited or put together around coaching and healing and and work in the educational space, supporting student athletes. And, and uh, he's really leaned in recently into the ways in which here in America we are harming each other. So he has a collection of poet, poetry called Killing America. He has 
a book on called Enough with the Talking Points, Doing More Good Than Harm in Conversation. Uh, just as an aside, I just saw a news headline. Uh, the town where I grew up, the, the Supreme Court, in, in service of freedom of speech, which I really value, said essentially it is okay for people to be, to be assholes to each other, to shout at each other, to curse each other. to And, you know, there's a part of me that says, yeah, all right, whatever. We just have to be ready for it all. That's part of the work. But there's another part of me that goes, does that do any good? Is, does it serve our democracy to not actually be able to talk to each other but just shout at each other? And the answer is obviously no. So the question is not how do we censor and silence ourselves so let's not censor and silence, but rather, how do we step more fully into the voice we actually want to speak for? And Reggie cares about that. And his latest book, Healing America's Narratives, goes deeply, deeply in to the history and context that has shaped the moment we're in today. Um, I highly recommend it. I don't know if Reggie's read this book, but I highly recommend it and, and compliment to the book uh, American Nations by the historian Colin Woodward. The two for me, intersect together in really fascinating ways. But even on its own, Healing America's Narrative is, is a deep look at how each of us individually can heal from our own pain and our own shadow in service of showing up in those spaces where we're needed to build a country rooted in wisdom and joy and equality and equanimity and the things that make room enough for any, every one of us on this vast continent of ours. All right. I think I'm rambling enough. If you want to learn more about Reggie, we'll include a link to his website in the show notes. Also a link directly hey, to Reggie. the book site. He Welcome America's to the Wonder Narratives. Thank you, Andy. So let's it's, uh, it's really settle good to in. be here with you. Yeah. Folks will have heard in the hmm. intro, but um, you were and hear what Reggie my coach mentor during my first coach training with Integral Coaching Canada. And um, it was awesome. I just learned a lot from you and really respect you. And then a few months ago, you emailed me and said, Hey, I wrote this, I wrote this little book and I'm putting little in quotation marks called healing America's narrative. Whoa. Yes. Uh, can you just, you know, check it out and share it with your folks. And I said, well, I can, why don't we talk about it? Cause that's what the wonder dome is about is talking about these questions of healing and possibility and and the future and who we are and who we're becoming. So it just was like really excited for you that you've worked on this project. I've spent a fair bit of time reading it. And uh, yeah, I can tell that, that a lot of love and intentionality and um, purpose went into creating this. Yeah. Th thanks for, for that. And I would, I would add to that, that uh, you know, one of the reasons I think we got along really well when we were in that, you know, coach mentor relationship is because of what you brought to the program and in the, the quality of the work that you did. But also, I wish that everyone else I had announced the, the book project to had responded with the same enthusiasm and platform as you responded with. So, <laughs> but, um, you know, but thank you for your interest and, and for uh, inviting me to, to, to the Wonder Dome. And, yeah. Yeah. Awesome, Reggie. I'm really glad you're here. Let's see, where do I want to start? There's, I feel like there's like three or four doorways that I could walk through. I think maybe I want to hear, before we get to some of the substance of the book, um, I, I want to, I, I'm really curious about what got you 
to the to say I'm going to sit in a chair or stand at my desk for probably quite a lot of hours looking at this question of America's history, who we who we say we are, who we actually are, and what it might mean for us to to I don't know to become something other than what we are, something more or, or truer to what we are. Like that's a that's an undertaking. What, what was important to you about writing this book? What got you in that chair? Um, it probably began I me. Mean, I, I was born in the, in the mid 1950s, so post World War II baby, and so I grew up with what I will affectionately refer to as many of the myths of America. Some of which are actually true, and many of which were not. Um, but the you know the promise of democracy and equality and, and freedom for and justice for all. You know, as and as I grew up and, and began to see, I mean, I was also eligible for the Vietnam War. I didn't go because I was just young enough that by the time I was in the draft, they weren't sending anybody over there again. But I mm. grew up in that time. So and I just paid attention for years um, to the myths. And then as I got to really, you know, meet people who are more diverse than I am as a cisgendered um, heterosexual um, Caucasian male, you know, second generation Italian American to get specific, you know, I realized that the playing field wasn't particularly level. Mm. So, you know, I had to grow into that because I had the myths to begin with. Fast forward then to the, you know, mid 20 teens, 2014, 2015. Um, and a guy that I kind of grew up with, I grew up in Yonkers, New York, um, but a guy that it was not quite a decade older than I am, but seven or eight years was Donald Trump. And when I got to read about him in the Daily News and, and in the New York Post and see him on the local evening news when he was a young you know, heir to his father's millions, he was something of a buffoon back then in my experience of him, mm. that he became president of the United States kind of riveted my attention and I realized pretty early on that he wasn't the problem that I was looking at, that he was, in fact, a symptom of the problem, and that there were enough people in the United States that thought he'd be a good president. So I began to pay real atten close attention to what that was about. Mm. So mm. that experience um, led me, I think, circa 20... It was 2016 where I wrote a blog about Donald Trump embodying the shadow of the United States. Mm. Um, and I updated it in 2018 after the midterm elections. And then I realized at some point that, number one, it wasn't really about him anymore and that there was enough uh, fodder for a book. Mm. So that's mm. not really a short version, but a relatively short version of, of how the book came about. Yeah convinced me to sit down in a chair yeah thanks for sharing that so so i i feel like there's a number so even if we just take kind of the the title of the book there's my sense is it might be helpful to align on some of the some of what you mean by some of these terms so that we can when we refer to them for the rest of the conversation people can understand what that means so there's that the title is healing america's narratives and then the subtitle is The Feminine, the Masculine, and Our Collective National Shadow, Becoming More Fully Human. So I wonder if, um, hmm, so what's the question here? 
Maybe you could say a bit about what you mean by a narrative. You you also used the word myth uh, a few minutes ago, and and then maybe we also once we've sort of fleshed that out a bit, we could talk a bit about what you mean by shadow and uh, the sort of feminine and masculine as well. Because I know you spend a fair bit of time in the book uh, fleshing those out up front, and that feels really important. Yeah, great, great. I, I appreciate the question. So I can actually begin a word before narrative and begin with exactly what I mean by healing, mm-hmm. because the word mm-hmm. healing uh, means a lot of things to a lot of people, I think. And so in the context that I'm using it in that title and throughout the book, um, healing refers to coming to terms with things as they are, different from curing or fixing something. And I and I believe that he, you know, all three of those can be important, you know, but, the, you know, at the very least, the first step in truly healing something is coming to terms with what is, mm. what's true in a given moment. So when we speak about healing America's narratives, um, my invitation in the book is to come to terms with what's true or what is mm. in, in the country, historically mm. and currently. Mm. And can you could, would you be willing to say a bit more about what what's healing about coming to terms with what is? Yeah. So the 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 best examples that I could give, I mean, and I think giving an example is the is the best way into that, yeah. is going into the the, the world of, of health and medicine. Um one of my integral coaching colleagues who's no longer with us, she died in May of 2016. And she was very public, so I'll even use her name. Um, her name was Jill Lang Ward, and she was from Canada. And she was diagnosed with multiple myeloma, hmm. which is not a curable form of cancer. And she and they gave gave her about a year to a year and a half to live, if I remember exactly. And she lived for about eleven years after the diagnosis. She took every experimental hmm. offering that they had throughout every province in Canada. She was she was a warrior for her own health, and when she died, um, she was she had definitely come to terms with the truth of what was going on inside of her body. This thing we call multiple myeloma, which I know very little about, other than it's a form of cancer. Um, so she definitely was not cured of the disease. Mm. But during the entire time I knew her, and I knew her for about four and a half or five years, um, I, I wasn't around when she was first diagnosed. I met her sometime after the diagnosis. Um, she had healed herself. She came to terms with things as they were. Mm. She was neither um, obliviously optimistic and, and in denial about anything, and nor was she practicing any sense of morbid fascination with her impending death. She lived a life um, where cancer was part of mm. her day-to-day. Mm. Mm. And, you know, she even used the language in, in the cancer wards where they refer to each other. Um, this goes back to the Lone Ranger, an old TV show. Um, chemo Sabis, where chemo is C-H-E-M-O. Yeah. Sabis. So, so that's an example of what I mean by you know, it was Jill was definitely healed or was in the process of constantly healing, but she was not cured on the day she died. Mm, mm. So, in terms of narrative, yeah, um, that distinction really is landing with me. By the way, I'm glad you you yeah. caught that and took time for that. 
Yeah, no, that's, I mean, that was a great question. Um, in terms of narrative, and what do I mean by healing narratives? Yeah. Um, so narrative and story for me are interchangeable words. So I use them both. Um, I'll, I'll go to myth in a moment just to, I don't use myth a lot in the book, but I do refer to myth on occasion. So I'll tease those apart. Um, but a narrative is an unfolding of events and a perspective about how the events unfold and, and uh, what they mean. And a story for me is the same thing. Events take place and then there's an interpretation or, you know, uh, um, meaning making around the events that, that take place. So in America, in my observation, there are, there, there's kind of a big mythic American narrative. Mm. That's the one about the beacon of democracy, place for, you know, equality and freedom and justice for all. Um, if we look closely at the founding of the country, if you were a woman or a Native American or an African, and later on an African-American, obviously there was not freedom, justice, and equality for all. So that's, we'll get to that. That's some of the nuts and bolts. Yeah. Um, so in America, besides this big mythic narrative that has some truth in it, I think, um, there are many, many, many narratives, um, many of which are getting voice in the, lat in the second half of the 20th century and into the first, you know, yeah. Three decades of the 21st century, but many more that really aren't equally heard or equally seen. And so healing those narratives, as the title of the book suggests we should, you know, should, we might want to do, um, refers to coming to terms with all of them. Why did you why did you correct yourself on should over to might want to? What's the what's the what was important about that? Yeah, I, I mean so. As, as as thank you for that. It's like a perfect question for me, because there's a in certain communities on the planet. Uh, it's actually a certain developmental worldview. There's a moving away from the word should. You know, there's a joke about you constantly shooting on yourself. Um, as, <laughs> Stop as, shooting as, on me, Reggie. <laughs> yeah, as though you're being too hard on yourself, and you know, you know, the word should is frowned upon by many people. So I may have just made a, uh, and thank you for calling me. I may have made a little bit of a faux pas in catching myself saying should and saying we might want to consider instead. Because mm. uh, I definitely think we should, before it's too late, visit the, revisit these narratives or visit them for the first time and begin the process of healing them. So yeah. that that's definitely a valid should for me. Mm. So mm. calling myself out on the, on the S word was probably inappropriate in that moment. <laughs> and so thank you for, for jumping in there. No, really. I mean, cause I'm not a complete proponent of getting rid of the word should. I think that ethically there are certain shoulds that you yeah. know, we should feed all the children. We should love each other. We should do a lot of those things, Yeah. but any yeah. word like that can get co-opted as well. So that's why I'm a little bit careful. Totally. Totally. And I am in touch. Maybe you're you're about to share, you kind of shared there's the big mythic narrative, and then there are narratives inside of that. And you're gonna maybe start to tease that out a bit. Um, the like it's to say we should or we might want to look at some of these, but I want to just just pause for a second and really underline like maybe we can talk about it now or talk about it as we get in. One of the tensions I felt reading this book was um 
attention, a question I felt was sort of, well, yeah, I, I do think, I also do think we should look at these histories. And I wouldn't be sitting here uh, reading this book or cast by Isabel Wilkerson or The Dawn of Everything or American Nations. Like there's a lot of really robust, well-researched histories yeah. that a lot of people don't read. <laughs> and a, a voice in me goes, you know, y'all should read this. <laughs> and I'm aware that there's some way in which I can, a part of me is going, if I tell someone to read a book about their history, like, and we're seeing this with critical race theory, which I don't actually, I don't, I haven't actually researched a critical race theory curriculum enough to have a judgment on it. But as I understand it, it's a point of view that says we need to talk about how race fits into our America's history. We should talk about that. And people go, ah, what, what do you mean we should talk about that? You're trying to, that's propaganda. You're going to, you know, but, and it just creates this intense sort of counter response. There's no way we should do that. And so so um, either now or at some point downstream in the conversation, I'd love to hear how you as a person who has an ethical stance and who has taken the time, you said to yourself, I should look at this history. You certainly shitted yourself on that. <laughs> like, what's important about that to you to sort of say, like, I'm going to hold this line. And I know that people are going to get mad at me. And I know that people are going to disagree. But this is, I actually do think this is a should. Yeah, I mean, great question. So, what I would, I'd love to do based on the question, since it's it's in the foreground right now, is we'll come back to the language of the feminine and the masculine and the shadow. We'll come back great. to on the subtitle. Let's come back to those, um, but let's let's address that question now. And I would love to even stay with the example of critical race theory um, because it's such a hot spot. You know, at this moment, as we're having this conversation, it's less in the news for a variety of reasons. Um, but it's still there in local school boards and in organizational HR departments, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Oh, yeah. So, um, and I'm not an expert on it, but I do address it in the chapter on African-American history. And then later again, refer to it as a chapter that deals with um, woke and cancel cultures. Mm. Um, and I took mm. a historical look at, at even though the language wasn't there for woke and canceling, you're being woke or canceling, the processes were there. And I can mm. even say something about that. But let's mm. just go to critical race theory briefly. Great. Um, critical race theory, um, which arguably began with as critical legal theory, surfaced in the 1970s in response to a slowing down of the significant positive changes that came about because of the civil rights movement, um, the Civil Rights Act of 64, the Civil and the Voting Rights Act of 65. So that was, you know, there were major shifts um, in America began to take place in the early and mid 60s and continued. And then they slowed down. And uh, people, specifically people in the legal profession who were in you know, litigating cases or sitting in as judges or were plaintiffs or defendants, um, mostly the people who were defendants probably, probably weren't as interested. Maybe they were. I don't know. I shouldn't even, you know, have mentioned the word defendant there. They got really curious about how much equality there really was now in the legal system mm. for people who weren't, you know, white, cisgendered, heterosexual. And, you know, men, men and women, but especially male. Mm -hmm. So th through those explorations, and there were, you know, 
done extensively, they realize, well, yeah, they're not. They're, the equality is really not there. I mean, the, mm. the laws are on the book. The Civil Rights Act passed. The Voting Rights Act passed. But historically, after any moment of what many people would call progress, let's say the equality of people of color, the equality for women, equality you know nowadays for gays or trans people, et cetera, there's always an almost immediate pushback mm. against that movement. So that definitely happened. Mm. So um, critical race theory began then to emerge with people, many of whom were attorneys, but many of whom were academics, really doing research on, you know, taking a critical look mm. at the truth about race in America post civil rights mm. act, mm. blah, 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 blah. So, I, so that, that's where it comes from. Mm. Um, one of the most well-known words in critical race theory is intersectionality, um, which, you know, Kimberly Crenshaw, who's a professor at NYU and a law professor, and also I think teaches at UCLA once, you know, as an adjunct, she coined the phrase um, specifically in a case. And I said, I'm going to give this one case because I think it's really um, emblematic of what we're talking about. In a case where several African-American women filed a suit for discrimination against their employer, which was a, I believe, an auto parts manufacturer, an automobile manufacturer. And it went to court. And the uh, judge found that the employer um, had a lot of African-American men working in the factory. So they checked off the race box. There was not mm. racial discrimination. They had a lot of white women working as secretaries and receptionists. So they checked off the gender box. So there was no gender discrimination. So the plaintiffs who were African-American women lost their case mm. because the legal system did not yet have box to check that included both race and gender. Mm. So that, you know, that that's kind of a, for me as a layperson understanding this, a really simple example. So if we can look at the intersection mm -hmm. of various groups, and then now it includes people of, you know, whether somebody is able-bodied or disabled, people, different religions, sexual orientations, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Until there's a case that shows up and a precedent is set, there isn't a box to check for a judge mm -hmm. to make a decision that's really fair, in this case, to those African-American women, because there was not race discrimination and there was not gender discrimination. But in fact, if you were a woman who was black, you were still discriminated against mm -hmm. in that particular case. Mm -hmm. um, last thing I'll say about this, because I don't want to, you know, I'm giving it a lot of time. I know many well-intentioned people in my experience have latched on to critical race, their understanding of critical yeah. race theory and specifically of intersectionality. And in terms of trying to teach what they know very little about, have done a horrible job in school districts, in organizational, um, mostly HR departments, in forcing people into diversity trainings and primarily alienating a lot of white people. 
not because of what the curriculum is intended to do, but because of the lack of skill with which it's implemented. That Now, that's all my opinion viewing this, but I would pretty much go into the arena with anyone to debate what I just said. Mm. Um, mm. So there's truth on both sides. Um, I've received it as a, you know, I'm a 68-year-old cisgendered heterosexual white guy. And there have been cases when I've been in a meeting somewhere where because of important changes that I agree with, some folks have tried to discount my view because of my age, my sexual orientation, my gender, mm-hmm. my skin pigmentation. Um, I understand that. I don't like it. I understand it. But I'm also articulate enough to address it when it happens in a way that, for the most part, doesn't alienate my accuser. Mm. I can't mm. always guarantee that because some people mm. are just locked in. Um so it's it's a real mess in many ways. And because of the d- divisiveness in this country politically right now, there's just sides are drawn. They take their sabers out and they start swinging them at each other and nobody is listening. And in my experience, very few performance news commentators, and I would say not not every elected official really understands what they're talking about. <laughs> and if they do, they're not willing to admit it on the air. So that's yeah. been my experience of that. Mm, thanks for so, that. Yeah, that's and so those narratives have to be recognized, owned, and healed. In other words, oh, yes, that is happening. Mm, mm, mm. So I have so, a little bit of passion around that. So yeah. I can tell. Well, I'm glad. I mean, I... I... I'm aware as someone who cares about our collective reality that there is so much to know and so much any one of us alone does not know. So I kind of I'm in a I'm in a sort of like yeah I kind of know what critical race theory is. I feel like I know more about the idea of intersectionality. I didn't realize where where it came from and how deeply it was connected to critical race theory or critical legal theory until you just educated me. Okay. Okay, cool. Useful. But, but on a kind of um, level of pattern, what you just described, I feel like, and maybe, maybe this starts to point towards shadow, shadow expressing itself or the, or the arise of Donald Trump, like the symptoms of shadow is like, we could take critical race theory out and plop in another topic. Mm. And, and we could come up with a litany of them. And that pattern you just described of the kind of the polarization that just intensifies uh, very quite quickly and quite in a way that makes makes it almost impossible to make any real meaningful progress on 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 something just like there it is again. So I wonder if we kind of look at the pattern of behavior, the saber sabers drawing that you described. How does does that connect to? shadow to the shadow that you're pointing to and and maybe that this is a moment to talk a bit more about that shadow or these symptoms of shadow yeah i mean great i really appreciate the move you made there so it, it definitely does and and so let's let's do the promised revisiting of feminine masculine and shadow now because it makes sense and i'll tie it in historically as well to current events um, as best i can so the subtitle again is the feminine the masculine and our collective national shadow um, and then we're using the word shadow in the Jungian sense of that word, because some people refer to shadow as the dark part of themselves that they don't like. 
And that's a fine use of the words, not what we're talking about. Um, uh, you know, according to Carl Jung and, and his followers and, you know, most um, people who, who are familiar with his work, shadow is that side, the part of us that we don't know is there. Um, and if we have any hint of it, we deny that it's there, but it's mainly invisible. Robert Bly has a great image that he refers to shadow as this long, invisible bag we carry behind us. And during childhood and adolescence, we're constantly throwing parts of ourselves in it mm. to keep our parents and our teachers and our peers happy. And then if we're healthy, once we get to be about 20 or so, we spend the rest of our lives trying to get things out so we can mm. become whole. Mm. Mm. So, so that's what shadow is. So it's the part that, you know. And sorry, I just really want to underline like that getting the things out of the bag we might use the language of healing then there. Like oh, you're yeah. just, you're yeah. you're attempting to know what actually, who you actually are really and what you carry with you really yep. as fully as you can. And that process is healing because yep. it allows for wholeness. Yep. Is that right? Yeah, perfect. I mean, th thank you for that. Th that's, um, you know, the, the move to recognize that shadow exists, own my or our collective shadow, and then begin to integrate it is a healing move. It's coming to terms with things as they are. How are they? Oh, I was denying parts of myself. I didn't know they were there. Now I'm trying to recover them so I can be a wholer, more fully integrated human being. So absolutely. Mm -hmm. yeah, thank you for that interjection, because that's really, I think it clarified what I was getting toward. Mm -hmm. um, what I began to see, and it's something I didn't know when I had the outline for the book, but as I wrote it, I began to see um, and believe deeply, and this is not a particularly profound insight, I don't think, I think it's an important one, um, that the shadow of the United States uh, emerges through an unhealthy iteration of masculine energy or masculine spirit. So let me just tease apart mm. Mm. masculine and feminine um traditionally and uh culturally the masculine is often attributed with the traits of um individualism a preference for justice a preference for wisdom a preference for agency and stepping in and getting it done and I'm, this is a real kind of superficial summary and the feminine is typically uh, considered to tend toward the traits of relationship or community as opposed to individual moves, mercy as opposed to justice, compassion as opposed to wisdom, um, community as opposed to agency. Um, and if you look at the history of the United States from, you know, let's say begin 100 years before its founding, so go back to the 1670s, give or take. You can go back further, obviously. There's a strong presence of agency, wisdom, which showed itself in the founding documents of the country, um, a sense of justice, uh, and a real focus on the individual. And at the time that that focus was first coming coming into focus, for lack of a better way to say it, the individual was not 
a diverse human being. It was a white, for the most part, heterosexual, cisgendered, land-owning British male. And we could say the same thing as regarded Caribbean or South America, Central America, it would be a Spanish male or Portuguese male or whatever, but we're talking about the United States. Um, and so from, from that time forward, it was this male-dominated sense of individual, even when it says, you know, injustice for all, the all was very, very specific and limited mm-hmm. to wealthy, you know, if you were a local blacksmith, you, you know, you weren't considered one of them even if you were, you know, Caucasian and cisgendered and heterosexual. So it was a very narrow, I would argue, individual view of what a human being is. Human being is people like us, basically. Mm -hmm. And and we can see the history there in how Africans were treated when the explorers turned colonizers began trying to find, you know, India by traveling west and what they did when they got to the what we now call the Americas and they came upon the indigenous peoples of North, South, Central America and the Caribbean. They didn't treat them as though they were human. They treated them as other than and that was the you know the masculine move. It wasn't the embrace of the feminine and oh let's look at this. Here's a different culture Let's embrace it and let's exchange and get to know each other. It was, oh, here's a different culture. They're not Christians. We don't understand them. They're savages. Let's dominate them. I mean, that's, again, a really succinct, oversimplified, but I think very accurate version of what happened. And another way to say that is that the founders and those that benefited from the founders' view felt, without this particular language, that they were more woke than people from Africa and people who were indigenous to the Americas when the British arrived here. Um, and so what they did, virtually, literally, was attempt to cancel those cultures. So the whole woke and cancel culture thing, which mm-hmm. is, feels really contemporary, has been going on for centuries just without those two words. Mm. Mm. So I'm going to mm. pause there because I just unloaded a lot on you. It's a big, that's a big bite to, to chomp into. Uh, yeah. I want to see what. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I'm glad. I'm grateful. I guess I'm, what I'm, what I'm sort of maybe struggling with here. And this this might be some of my own work to do, but like when we say things like uh, when we take a category like okay, let's what sort of what sort of traditionally and to the extent we're aware of kind of naturally biologically shows up in masculine energy and masculine bodies. Which, by the way, you make the point in the book that these these stances or viewpoints don't have to or always show up in someone in a certain kind of body. So right, like it's possible for someone who is seen as a woman or identifies as a woman or, you know, can also be quite individualistic or, you know, quite oriented towards whatever the, whatever that sort of piece is. But when we, when you describe the masculine energy kind of generally like, oh yeah, like, you know, wisdom and uh, agency and individualism, 
those things in and of themselves kind of have a bit of a, they have a sort of positive connotation. I'm like, yeah, I, w- I want everyone to have access to wisdom and, mm-hmm. and agency. That feels important. But then what you described as an extension of those qualities is quite violent and destructive. So, so I wonder if we could just unpack here, or maybe you could unpack like, what is it about the masculine energy that, that seems very unwise to me, for instance, (laughs) to show up to a place you don't know and immediately start taking and killing and lying and, uh, you know, sort of getting as much land and resources as you can, however the fuck you can get it. That doesn't sound like wisdom to me. So I wonder if you could just sort of take us further down, like, well, well what happened? If the masculine energy has all these positive values, what happened? And, and you hinted at like, well, part of it was these these British white colonial settlers thought they their point of view was the best point of view. So let's get everyone to our point of view. Yeah. I mean, they had both the church in, in the case of Great Britain and America, the Anglican Church, but in, in case of South America and Central America, it was the Catholic Church more. But it was they had the church and the monarchy on their side, so they knew they were right. Hmm. Um, you know, in quotation marks, they knew they were right. So I'm really careful in the book to make it clear that um, that the American shadow is not due to masculine energy; it's due to an unhealthy manifestation of the masculine in a virtual absence of healthy mm, mm, that's mm. so as you said and really insightfully so andy that it it doesn't matter if somebody identifies biologically as a man or a woman if somebody feels that they're non-binary if they're gender fluid it doesn't matter if they're gay or straight um the traditional feminine and masculine energies as we're using the language now are available to anyone and they can iterate in a healthy way or an unhealthy way Mm. so a a healing of the american shadow as we're speaking about it would be the integration it wouldn't be getting rid of the men we're not saying that or getting rid of the masculine it would be an integration of healthy feminine and healthy masculine energy in as many people as possible and then ex- extrapolate it out in as many systems and institutions as possible. I mean, because we could look at the, and I don't want to go down this route hole, but I'll just say it once. We could look at the United States Congress current day, and there are plenty examples of some really, I mean, there aren't plenty, but there are some examples of some healthy men who embody pretty good balance of the of feminine and masculine energies and some what I would describe as unhealthy women who embody unhealthy masculine. Mm. So you can mm. see that. I mean, just, you know, turn on the TV, listen to the news. It's there um, for, for the seeing. Um, so all of the traits of the masculine and all the traits of the feminine, I mean, this, I'll just say them out loud again, just without attributing them. Wisdom. Mm. Mercy, and not even in the pairs, wisdom, mercy, justice, compassion, agency, communion, relationship. All of those are, who doesn't want those? Yeah, yeah. But um, wisdom, let's just go back to the masculine. Oh, I have a lot of wisdom. I'm wiser than you. The king or the queen and the pope told me that I'm right, or the head of the Anglican church. And you people, 
in Africa or you people in the what we now call the Americas, you don't know anything about the monarchy mm. or Christianity. Mm. So my wisdom is better than yours. So I'm going to dominate you. There's mm. the unhealthy wisdom. Mm. You can take that with any, you know, take relationship or community to an extreme and you become codependent. Mm-hmm. That's, you know, mm-hmm. It's a feminine end of it. So anything uh, in too much of a dose, anything that's not homeopathically like <laughs> titrated, titrated um, can can run into some problems. So, yeah. yeah, got it. That's really helpful. And 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 there's this. Um, I may be a bit like kind of divergent here, but I'm just in touch with a story you tell in the book. I wish I had. I have bookmarked it, but I didn't bookmark it in preparation for this conversation. So I can't remember the name of the person, but there's a story you tell or of the tribe, <laughs> but there's a story you tell of like a uh, sort of like Lieutenant or someone in the military who is asked to escort or is like asked to like go to this big fort. Maybe it's Fort Laramie. And he has a story in his head about, who these savages are that he's going to have to escort. And, uh, and then he, he actually, as he escorts them, he says something like, I felt like I was in the presence of greater beings. So this, this isn't the story of the two people who, who um, had to like wanted to bury his son. That's another powerful story, but it's like this guy who says like, I felt like I was in the presence of greater beings. Yeah. Got it. And uh, yeah. Could you tell that story a bit more? Because he, he saw something. Ah, here it is. Edward Major Edward Wincoop. Yep, got it. Right? Yeah, tell that story a bit because that seems to me to be an, a, an example of someone seeing more clearly than just the filter of like, well, I'm wise because I have this position and you don't, or I have this knowledge and you don't. Yeah. So he, you know, he was an officer. He's a he's a major in the United States Army, um, and. Uh, he had fewer than than you know a couple of hundred troops under his command at Fort Lyon, and there were some something in the area of two thousand Cheyenne and maybe um, some other uh, Native American nations in in the area, and they were trying to convince the Cheyenne and these other uh, Native Americans to come to this particular um, fort, and several of the chiefs weren't buying it because bad things had happened when they trusted the federal government in the past. So at one point, um, one of the chiefs sent two of his messengers to Major um, Winkoop. And uh, and I'm, I'm kind of looking at, at the passage as I'm saying this, so I'm, I don't have all this memorized. And the, the two Cheyenne um, males were one eye and eagle head, and they were kept as both hostages and guides. And as you, you you know, you spoke to it really clearly. Winkoop felt that Native Americans were inferior beings, and as he spoke with these two, as they're on their way to back to their camp, um, he said, "Quote: I felt myself in the presence of superior beings, um, and he had previously thought them to be cruel, treacherous, and bloodthirsty." Long story short, when he got them back to the camp. Right, and eventually took them to meet the governor of the Colorado Territory at the time, um, and spoke on their behalf, saying, "Look, you know, we need to take a breath and think about what we're doing here." He was faced with um, the governor, Governor Evans of the Colorado Territory, basically said, 
But if if what you're saying is true, this is a quote, what shall I do with the 3rd Colorado Regiment if I make peace? They have been raised to kill Indians, and they must kill Indians. So, I mean, that was a moment. So for his trouble, um, Major Winkoop got relieved of his post. Yeah. Um, so his superiors didn't like, you know, his growth or development as a human being. You know, and, and part of what I'm saying there in that way isn't fair because the idea of growth and development as a human being is language that was not around back in the 1800s in, in, at this time and place. Um, but we can see it as something that's still prevalent today, that when somebody moves beyond the conventional wisdom in a way that's better for more people and is more inclusive, what the conventional, what society does, you picture a rubber band, um, and, and if the rubber band is stretched between your, your thumb and your forefinger, and that's conventional wisdom, what the rubber band does, if you haven't caught up yet, it pops you up to catch up with conventional wisdom. But if you try to raise up above the conventional wisdom, it snaps you back down. Mm. And that's what mm. happened to, I mean, you know, Martin Luther King Jr., um, early on with Nelson Mandela, um, anybody who really made a move to expand the conversation was quite It's quite risky and dangerous, like, yeah. like to, the, to, to the level of life and death to... Try and lift that rubber band up. Yeah, yeah, but but this maybe gets at an example of of shadow, right? Like, Wincoop had a story in his head that those people, or maybe people wasn't even the right word in his worldview. Those those savages out there were bloodthirsty, cruel, and treacherous. And as a result of that being out there in those people, Wincoop is a loyal soldier. Uh, you know, uh, an officer part of the the civilized uh human human race and and suddenly he discovers that like i mean at least in that story we're seeing exactly the inverse that here we have these two people being held hostages who are nevertheless guiding Wincoop where he wants to go and saying something like if any of my fellow Cheyennes ever ever uh broke their word i would no longer want to be a Cheyenne yeah right yes. like and he's going like I don't hear anyone around me talking like that. Like, whoa, whoa. And then he meets the, the did you say it was the governor of Colorado who's like, yeah, we're going to uh, have to kill him because that's what we do. Bloodthirsty, yeah. cruel. It's like, <laughs> talk about like the inversion of, of shadow, like taking something you think is not yours and putting it on someone else and then going, oh, this is actually ours. Yeah. So maybe you could say more about what's coming up for you as I as I point that out. Yeah. So so thank thank you for bringing in that because I didn't get to that quote where the you know the two guides hostage guides basically said, "No, nah, if my chief if our chief doesn't keep his word and we don't keep our word, we don't want to be Cheyenne anymore because Cheyennes keep their word." And that was like, you know, Winko basically said, "Well, you know, they're they're I'll have what they're having because yeah. Yeah. he saw the value and the and the wisdom." And the relation, I mean, he saw he had that balance of community and wisdom and justice and mercy. He had that, it seems. And I only know him from you know reading about him in history. But it so what we're moving toward, Andy, I think, is something that we haven't spoken to yet, which plays a role in the book. Um, and that's developmental worldview. And yeah, and something I know that you know something about, something I know something about. And 
I took great pains in the book not to try to teach developmental worldview because the amount of research on it is voluminous, you know, abundant, yeah. um, very, very big. And so what I did was I created a shorthand, which so far has worked. Um, there, there's ample, there's over 50 years of research now that we know adults can develop. We used to think mm. that you developed from conception through about the age of 18 or so, and then whatever you had, you had, and you were done. And we no longer, we, we, not, we now know that that's not true. But four basic worldviews inform, um, and, and the, the, the research is much more nuanced and granular. There's, you know, eight to 12 different types of worldview you can grow through. But these four kind of capture it. And this was what happened with Winkoop, I think, mm. yeah, mm. as this example applies. So one view of the world is it's all about me. Right? And any one of these worldviews can be healthy or unhealthy. So you you have to grow through a healthy it's about me stage as a young child. You know, what we call the terrible twos, basically. You know, when you realize you're separate, you begin to get language and you're ambulatory and you can start asserting yourself. And it is. It's all about and that's a healthy thing to develop a healthy sense of ego and individuate. So nothing wrong with it's all about me. Right? But gradually. If a child is loved and nurtured and fed, the next movement is it's about us. It's all about us. And us in a healthy situation typically is family of origin. But it can become classmates, sports team, clubs, community, religion, nation, political party, whatever. You know, there are, there are probably millions of us's, not probably, mm -hmm. there are billions of us's mm -hmm. on the planet. Um, that can be healthy. The us becomes unhealthy when it becomes us against them. Mm. Mm. But us with them, okay, that works. Us and them, that's healthy. The next move, and this is a, we're going to stay with human beings now, because if we go down the rabbit hole of all sentient beings, or is everything in the universe sentient, you know, we'll never get out of that. And I'm, I'm not prepared <laughs> to go there. <laughs> But in terms of humans, the move from it's about us to it's about all of us. Oh, all humans are equal. Mm -hmm. Approximately the same number of bones, if we're lucky, two eyes, a nose, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, culturally, we're different. But in terms of the, being a species, we have that. So the move that Winkoop seemed to, beginning, seemed to be beginning to make was he was in that it's about us, mm -hmm. the United States versus the Indians. Native Americans. Um, and what he learned from his two hostage guides was, oh, it's not us against them. It's us and them. And maybe it's about all of us, mm. Native mm. Americans and the U.S. Army and this thing we call America. You know, mm. whatever his thought process is, mm. we don't know. We, we won't know. But he made some kind of a move there that was more inclusive. Mm. Mm -hmm. And then the last one is... Um, in terms of identity, is it's about all that is. So if you really realize that you're part of this universe or this multiverse, if you want to go there, and that it's all this, even in the multiverse, it's all one. Um, and then that just changed. If you live in that space, and very few, if any human beings that I know, live there. It's like very few live in it's about all of us. A lot of people articulate it, but very few live there. The vast majority of the people on the planet in my experience, and the vast majority of the damage done on the planet 
in the 20th and 21st centuries and, and prior was in an us-centric or group-centric mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. iteration. My nation against yours, my religion against yours, my political party against yours, my race against yours, my gender, you know, pick one. So the the us-centric, the us-against-them stuff um, is doing most of the damage in this third decade of the 21st century, in my view of things. Yeah. Um, and the move to seeing every human being as equal, in other words, deserving of equal rights, we're not equal in terms of our physiological gifts or our intellectual gifts or our, you know, whatever gifts we we have, obviously. If we were, you and I probably wouldn't be talking because I would have been a retired NBA player. <laughs> Maybe we still would have been talking. I don't know. But I'd uh, still be in the league. I mean, I'd be like at the top of my game right now. Oh, that's so. right, too. Yeah. <laughs> there you go, pulling the age card. Um, but so, 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 yeah. Um, but the developmental piece comes into play. Once again, because the explorer slash colonizers came over with an us against, it's an all about us view, mm-hmm. whether it's the Anglican Church, whether it was the, you know, the, or the movement to democracy, freedom of religion, which is what the founders, you know, to their great credit, they gave us a really good starting point. Were they blind in some ways? Absolutely. But they were doing the best they could with what they knew. So they both need to be criticized at one level. And we cannot project 200 years plus into the past and say, you know, they're so stupid because they didn't know how to drive a manual transmission. Well, because it was a different world and there were no bars yet, boys and girls. So we can't project into the past and judge the past based on what we're gifted to see and know pretty much because of the gifts they gave us. And the iterations of it over 246 years. So, mm. Um, mm. so this is, I'm really glad we're sketching this out. I'm, a, I'm aware of the part of me that like, in particular, I often have this feeling in these conversations that, that there's a certain inadequacy to the format of a, of an hour conversation. And in particular, given that you've written, uh, I don't know, a 400 plus page book that goes through a number of narratives related to oppression of women oppression of, of um, Africans, Black people, African-Americans, oppression of uh, and Native Americans, American Indians, like just, and, and you keep going, right? Like there's like this litany of like, you got to look at this, you got to look at this. Look, and so you, so to take all of that in is, is a real commitment. And I'm aware that this one hour is simply not a place where we can get it all in, even though I want to, <laughs> even though I really want to. Do you, do you, I, I would love to use a little bit of extra time, maybe 10 more minutes here, if you have it, to just sort of say, okay, if to the best extent that you've been able in this conversation, you sort of helped orient us to a point where, at least as I'm understanding it, we're at a place where like, okay, we've got some parts of our history that have been outright denied um, and that continue up to this moment right now to be sources of really intense conflict, sometimes life and death conflict uh being waged kind of across the american landscape like it's an intense people are dying in america because of these issues it's still with us right here right now as you quote james baldwin is saying like the past is in us yeah. so you've kind of sketched that picture and in a, in a way you said that the challenge is that we've got this kind of uh unhealthy masculine energy uh divested of any co-balancing feminine energy and uh, and that 
masculine energy lives inside a worldview that has been for many, many century, decades and centuries, a kind of us versus them worldview and us over them worldview. And so here we are in uh, this moment where collectively many of us still inhabit that us versus them worldview. Many of us are still, and I want to be really clear, and you make this clear in the book, many of us, including most men, are suffering the results of this hyper-masculine, hyper-individual kind of energy. What's, what is that like? Okay, now we've seen a bit of what is some of the healing is possible. Well, now what, now what the fuck do we do, Reggie? <laughs> you know, like, and, and you make some efforts in the back half of the book to begin to sketch a picture of what that might look like. So maybe we could use the the remainder yeah. of our conversation to play with that possibility. Does that feel good? Yeah, it definitely does. Yeah. Thank you for that. Um, you know, one little asterisk I'll put in, there's a chapter that um, I dedicate to just all the stories that I didn't tell, give give a full chapter. So I don't, I don't really. I give like four pages to climate change. I give a couple of pages to the health, lack of healthcare system in the United States. A couple of pages to various other issues which deserve time, but I couldn't write a two thousand page book. So I chose not <laughs> to. Do that. So so yeah. So if, if I were you know in, in a, the amount of time we have, um, I'll actually point to something. In terms of so now what? That's chapter eleven in the book. All right. So you've you've tortured me as a reader. <laughs> I'm speaking to myself, you know, for ten chapters now. So now what? And that's when I begin to tease apart what we might want to do, mm. but really begin with what appears in the first chapter. And if I were speaking to any individual about this, uh, and I, I am, I'm speaking to you right now. The first thing I w- I think is really essential is to come to terms with with one's own cultural givens. What's the view of the world you were given, I was given, whomever, and from birth through the you know think your single digit years at least, because you can you're constant, I'm still given things from the culture, but I'm I think at, in moments I'm wise enough to say, okay, that's not mine, you know, yeah, and I'm buying into that. So I'm a cultural critic in some ways. But we're all given a worldview, mm-hmm. like it or not. And if we're healthy adolescents, we begin to challenge it, sometimes before adolescence. But get really clear on what you were given and how much of it might still be affecting how you are as a human being mm-hmm. and what you might need to reflect on and investigate in your own view. So that's the first thing yeah. that anybody can do. And you do a really robust job of this. Like you're like, as an author, here's what I was, here's what I was given. And uh, here's where I'm at now. And and so, so I won't ask you to do all of that in this moment, but maybe just one example of what you mean by a given and how, how you got to a place where you could see that as a given that might not actually be true. Could you, is there an example? Yeah, I'll give them, I'll give you the really early basic one. So again, I was born in 1954, black and white TV, seven channels, um, and based on the worldview I got from from books that were available, including children's encyclopedias and television shows, um, cowboys were good guys. Native Americans, we didn't call them, they were Indians, um, were savages. That was still, except for the Lone Ranger, where Tonto was kind of a good Indian. But a lot of movies showed Indians as savages. Um, slavery was bad, but Abraham Lincoln in the Civil War ended slavery. Mm. Done. Mm. The United States was the best country in the world because we won all our wars and we helped other countries and we have a democracy and the Catholic church is one true church. So that was not, those were not options I had as a kid. 
that was the, the truth about the world. Everybody gets some version of something. You know, and it's different now because a lot of the 60s exploded a lot of myths and the 70s, you know, and a lot has happened since then. But everybody, the children being born today are going to get givens and they need to explore them. So that's in a nutshell what I mean by that. Yeah. And if I was someone who wanted to explore my givens, like just what would what would be a, how would you help me start? What would be a jumping off point? Um, some things to include or your year of birth because because chronology matters. Your location of birth, um, just you know where you were geographically, um, religion or lack thereof, uh, the political stances in your family of origin, the belief mm-hmm. systems that you're given. Those are you know the what what does your family of origin believe? Mm-hmm. Um, that that's basically the place to yeah. start, and just like really mm-hmm. making that explicit as a, as as you can as a, as much of. What is it that my family believed about religion? Oh, this. What is it that my family believed about uh, marriage? This. Okay, like sort of just like asking some of those questions and answering them. Is that yeah. right? What? Yeah. What did my family believe about money? What did my family believe mm. about work? What is work mm. and what's good work? I mean, all of those things come into play. So it's a really, in lack of a better way of saying it, it's a 360 degree investigation of what I was given both explicitly I was told this by a teacher or a parent and what I absorbed by watching adults mm. and other kids sometimes as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. So it's a fairly, and again, the, the front of the book guides people through, I give an example of mine. It's got like four pages long. And I basically say, I'm not saying be like me, find your own version of this, explore the same type stuff. Oh, yeah. 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 Okay. And so once you've done that, that feel that's set from where you sit, that's like a foundational exercise. Yeah, because if you if you don't know what you were given, you're not going to be able to know today what's truly yours that you've chosen or what has chosen you. Mm. Another way mm. to say what you're given is you were chosen by that. Mm. 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 Um, and you're and you're and you kind of refer to this in the book. I forget the exact language you use, but there's sort of a way in which if we've been chosen by something or we've inherited it or we've been given it. And we're not conscious that we're carrying it or giving it. It actually enacts us. It like talks through us. It's sort of, you know, the, the the topic comes up and we suddenly hear ourselves saying the thing that someone else said. Like there's, it's sort of an automatic, there's a reactiveness or an uh, automation to it. Is that right? Yeah. So, so uh, Thomas Merton put it beautifully. I'm like, when I read this phrase in, in his uh, essay called Inner Work, I believe, um, he referred to, the anonymous authority of the collectivity speaking through your mask. Mm. That's Merton's mm. sense. Ken Wilber, 40 years later, with the benefit of developmental psychology, which Merton didn't have, he, he wrote that in 67, give or take. Wilber basically wrote, you know, this vast intersubject, this vast intersubjective network is speaking through this individual, mm. speaking mm. about a, spe- <clears throat> a specific view of the world. So it's, um, the culture is, it's, you know, if we're fish, it's the water we're swimming in. Yeah. You know, I said the joke about the yeah. fish, well, where's this water everybody's talking about? <laughs> yeah. Got it. So we start to make some of that invisible, visible, some of that unconscious conscious. And then from what you've described as healing, that in itself can become a healing process, right? Like that in itself is a really important, essential step. Right? Yeah. It's coming to terms with what is for me personally, 
you know, what I was given, what I really believe. And in fact, a great move to what else I recommend towards the end of the book. Um, there are six questions that begin chapter 11. And I'm, maybe it makes sense just to say them out loud. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then if we if we have time to unpack one or two, we can. But you know, I want to honor um, your time. I've got, I've got, yeah, I've got a good, I also want to, I was honoring yours. I can, I can totally jam for another like uh, five to 10 minutes here. Yeah, I'm good for as long as you want to go. Okay, great. great. My next task is lunch and I'll relax over that. So, <laughs> so, so six questions that introduce this chapter. So now what? And I unpack each of these in some detail. So I'll, actually there's six questions and statements. Um, so I'll just say them out loud and then we can return to them. So first one is, who am I really? Hmm. Small thing to consider. Um, <laughs> the next one is a statement. Everything is a story. Third one is a question. What's my impact and what impacts me? Um, another question. What am I not seeing? That's the movement to shadow. That's a great daily practice. Wake up in the morning. Okay, what am I missing today? What am I not seeing? Um, next one is who are my people? That's a really rich one because it's easy to misinterpret that. Um, the fifth one is a statement. Excuse me. The sixth one is a statement. Um, I am going to die. Mm. And that's a kind of a sobering statement. And then there's a, a, a final one in chapter 12. I just add to this list and it's how I, how am I in relationship with each of these questions of, and statements and with the rest of my life. So how I, am I in relationship with all this? Because ultimately, I believe what matters most in one's life is not what happens, although that's a big deal. It's my relationship with what happens. Mm. So, mm. you know, when I stub my toe or spill the milk, you know, those tragedies you know, can be dealt with in a lot of different ways. Mm -hmm. You can go crazy and curse and yell and, you know, self-criticize, uh, or I can say, oh, that hurt. I have to be more careful or whatever, and then move on, or just clean up the milk mm -hmm. and without blaming. So, you know, those are two kind of goofy, simple examples. But how I'm in relationship with whatever happens and whoever shows up um, is really important. And that's you know, Rumi's poem, The Guest House, which I'm yeah. not going to get into now, but some of your listeners probably have heard that poem. That's what he's talking about there. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Okay. So I think I want, I think there are, I think I want to attempt to connect that last insight, how I'm in, in relationship to all of this, to the possibility of like the quote unquote unhealthy or healthy expression of these, particularly that question, who are my people? Right. Cause you see, you imply like that's a loaded one that could be misinterpreted. And I, if my answer to that question is my people uh, are, you know, other white men, those are my people, uh, then uh, I can, you can see already how I'm, I'm ensnaring myself inside of, or I've been ensnared inside of a story about uh, what a people are, and I'm creating an us versus them dynamic. Yeah. But what you're saying is like, okay, just notice who, who are your people who, and you could, uh, you could unpack that in lots of ways. Who, 
If you walk into a room, who are other people going to compare you to? Uh, who do you, who are you drawn towards? Who do you feel safe around? Who do you want to be a part of? Like you can, you can play with that people question lots of ways, but then if you zoom out and go like, well, what's your relationship to that? You know, is it, are you, are you attracted to your people because you feel afraid of not having a people? Well, okay. What does that tell you? Or are you, are you attracted to people because they align on something that you really care about and that helps you stand more with more integrity? You know, so I'm just, I'm riffing here, but I'm curious, like, if that gets at the spirit of that last question, how are you relating to these other questions? Yeah, I mean, you you zeroed in perfectly on it. It's, it's this idea, I, I make a joke in, when I introduce that question, um, that some people, I'd say we're in this big arena with all human beings, and when you ask that question, who are my people, we have these cheerleaders running around saying, everyone, 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 you know. That's a developmental worldview. That's the, it's about all of us worldview where most of us don't live. <laughs> we don't live there. So it, it comes back, you know, it brings us back to the, first of all, the, the importance of developmental worldview. You know, you know, who are my people? Um, and how my view, my answer to that question will be at the very least influenced by, if not dictated by my worldview. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And until, and I don't know the, you know, I've heard it's 11%, somebody else says it's 51%. I don't know the math on this, but in, you know, somewhere in the vicinity of two thirds to three quarters of the people on the planet, as far as we can tell, live either in it's all about me or it's all about us. In other words, they're not in a world-centric, it's about all of us view. So until that begins to shift, until you you and I and all of us begin to get curious about all of these problems, all of this craziness, and and I'm losing the side of the question you asked me, I can hear myself now, I'm just losing sight of it. Um, But until we make enough of us are are able to, to make that move, we will remain in this polarized us versus them perspective. And Mm -hmm. our people, my people will be those who look like me or join the same clubs as me. Now, this is where we wanted to go. Thank you. You said the word alignment. So I know nowadays in my life, my people are those people whose values and purpose are more or less attuned with or aligned with mine. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Has nothing to do with their age. Has nothing to do with their skin pigmentation. Has nothing to do with their religious views. Um, that's even how I vote politically. I vote for a candidate whose worldview, as far as I can tell, is more or less aligned with mine. Even if he or she would vote on a given issue different than I would, if across the board I feel more attuned to that person. That's who gets my vote. So mm. it's this attunement piece, alignment piece, that's who my people are, has nothing to do with physiological traits. Mm. As mm. far for me personally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this the sort of question, possible insight, possible kind of hypothesis I'm sitting with, which I feel like we've said both implicitly and explicitly in this conversation, but I want to try and say it again one more time is that the habit allowing our facility, if we can consciously facilitate ourselves to have 
an experience that approximates the experience that Edward Wincoop had, which is to say, to notice, to take who we think we are and meet who we think the other is, whatever other this is, could be another group of people or could be, you know, an issue or whatever it is, you know, what I like, I think this about critical race theory and they think that about critical race theory done. We've, this is the side I'm on. If we can facilitate some kind of experience that allows for a meeting of these seemingly contradictory sides, a meeting where uh, conversation can happen, where connect, where listening can happen. That that is the work ahead of us. That's kind of what I'm feeling right now as I hear you invite me and anyone who's hearing this or anyone who reads your book to sit and take the time to ask these questions. Does that resonate? Yeah, yeah, it really does. And what I've learned. And, and it disappears briefly in the book as well. There's research that shows, I mean, the, the word that comes up, and I'm not going to remember the, who the researchers were, but a simple word to uh, speak to what you just said is contact. Mm. That they found that um, the prospects for dehumanizing another one, another human being, go way down if there's contact with that person and if the contact preferably is in person. Mm. and ongoing mm. there's mm. research that you know that uh, certain folks in in europe uh, in, in who weren't jewish certain christians in europe during the holocaust who helped hide jews there was only one trait that differentiated those christians who helped hide the jews and those who didn't through this research and the trait was that the people who helped hide the jews had had previous contact with them in their neighborhood, mm. in a local shop or whatever it was, that they just knew somebody. They had contact. Mm. Um, and then there's some research that says uh, contact on things like on social media, like Twitter and Instagram, et cetera, that doesn't really work. In fact, that kind of contact actually has the opposite effect. It further alienates people. Yeah. So, But you named it. So, so to your question, yes, um, Wincoop, wasn't on Twitter. He, he wasn't on Facebook. <laughs> yeah. He was going through the wilderness, you know, with these two Cheyenne guides and hostages, and he got to know them, and it shifted him. So mm -hmm. it, it, that's what we're talking mm -hmm. about for sure. Mm -hmm. yeah. And it strikes me that like one of the uh, and this is this this is this what you've called the unhealthy masculine taken all the way to the extreme. One of the one of the most potent ways to ensure. Because I, I kind of am realizing that a part of me believes that that there's there is some part of all of us that fears if we make actually make that contact, we will lose ourselves or we will break the loyalties of the us and be punished for it. And you know, we're not I mean, Coop, when Coop was punished for it, right? So that's that that's that snap snapping back. Like there's some part of us always working to protect us from that kind of contact because. If it happens, we will change, and that change could come at, at real real stakes, cost of identity, cost of life. And the most powerful way to ensure you never make that contact is to just kill the other person. Violence, even if I'm right next to you, if I'm violent towards you, then I'm not actually seeing you. You're just something to get out of my way so that I never make contact with you. So that like that's how extreme the response to not make contact can be because it feels... The stakes can be quite high if you live inside of a me or us worldview. Yeah, I mean, I love what you just said. And, and I'm just going to list nine words, something that 
you know, would have been relevant. Um, I probably should have named it when I mentioned the when we mentioned the word shadow at the top of our conversation. But the, there are nine elements of shadow, mm. American shadow that I identified. I'm just going to say the words, and they're all very common words. Um, and you just spoke to them. I mean, and, and I'll just say them in in an order that they often occur. Like one can lead to the other, at least for the first four or five. And after that, it doesn't happen. But there, the the elements of American shadow were ignorance, arrogance, fear, bigotry, violence, greed, excess, bullying, and untrustworthiness. Mm. Those, those are the nine traits that that recur throughout the, all those histories, history of women, history of Native Americans, African Americans, two others that we did were, were the Vietnam War, and then the wars in uh, Iraq and Afghanistan post 9-11. Those nine traits just recur. Mm. Um, and that move from Ignorance to arrogance to fear makes it really easy to dehumanize those who are not like us, leading to bigotry and violence. So you, I mean, you just said that in different words. So I just wanted to to honor what you said um, really succinctly, and and you know, bring it back to the foundational elements of shadow mm-hmm. as we speak about it in the mm-hmm. book. So thank mm-hmm. you for that. Yeah, man, Reggie, I could not have asked for a cooler way for us to reconnect. Like it's been a few years and um, I really am receiving so many aspects of you that just because of the nature of the role you were playing and the studies I was undertaking, I didn't really get insight into, um, but I'm so appreciative of kind of the scholarly energy you're bringing to these questions, but also the like applied practical practice or praxis you're bringing as a coach and as someone who cares about helping people around you be more fully human in their work and their lives. Um, and I hope that this finds its way to lots of people who are ready to look at these histories and who are willing to step into that unknown space of truly making contact with a point of view or a person or a group of people that um, might feel edgy or scary or, or whatever that is. I really hope that this book helps more people make contact with themselves, with our past and with each other in this present moment we're in. Yeah. Yeah, thank you for that. I, I do too. Obviously, I have lots of reasons. I spent a lot of years writing it, so yeah. I so too. <laughs> yeah. Well, this has been really fun. Um, thank you for taking the time. I, I I hope we did the book at least partial justice and, and yeah. uh, look forward to connecting again soon. Thank you, Andy. You bet. You bet. Thanks for tuning in to The Wonder Dome. This podcast was produced by me, Andy Cahill, with support from Kelly Serqua and audio editing services from John Nolan at Middle Mountain Studios. The theme song was written and performed by Todd Marston. You can find The Wonder Dome wherever pods are casted. If you dig what we're doing here, please share widely, subscribe, and give us some love in the review boards. And if you feel called to support this humble offering to the world, while also making an even greater impact in the lives of others, consider becoming a monthly supporter. Not only will you help me keep the lights on, and keep this show going for as long as I'm able. But 30% of all member contributions go directly in support of causes like the Black Lives Matter movement, the United Nations Refugee Agency, and the National Resources Defense Council. You can find out more at my website, mindfulcreative.coach, where you can also sign up for my newsletter, learn about my transformational coaching work, and get plugged into exclusive offers and community happenings. 
In the meantime, I'm wishing you a life of purpose, power, and presence. We need you now, more than ever. <laughs>